Let's pray as we stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the cross on which he died, and we pray this morning that we may see him more as he truly is, and marvel more at the love, the deep love he's shown us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated, and if you'd like to take your Bibles out again, it'd be really helpful to have those open, um, and turn to John chapter 7, which we had read for us just now. And that's page 1071, 1071, and over the page, John 7. Recently, I've been reading the story of the church in Germany back in the 1930s, the time when Adolf Hitler was coming to power um, as Chancellor of the Reich, and the point where he insisted that the churches, the Christians in Germany, came directly under, effectively, under his rule. And many churches went along with that, but there were pastors like, very famously, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who insisted um, very fiercely that because of the, the principles, some of the values of the Nazi movement, it would absolutely not be right for the church to submit to the state, to Hitler and the Nazis. Um, and he and thousands of others objected and formed what was called the Confessing Church, but Amazingly, in some ways, the majority of the Christians in Germany, the church leaders in Germany, uh, went under the rule of the Nazis and the Reich. And it's fascinating, isn't it, how, uh, despite what seems, with history's hindsight at least, to be incontrovertible evidence, how blind human beings can be. We may well have been to what seems, with hindsight, so clear, so obvious. Well, the parallels with Jesus in John's Gospel are quite interesting there because Jesus in John's Gospel, and John's shown us this in recent weeks, is is being presented as someone who gave evidence, powerful evidence, for the truth of his claims through his words, but also through his actions, what John calls the miracles, the signs he performed, pointing to his identity. And yet, what's interesting in John's Gospel is that whilst many believe in Jesus... Uh, a number of very key people don't believe in him. They're just not persuaded, rather like church leaders in Germany were not all persuaded back in the 30s by Bonhoeffer. And in this chapter, chapter 7 and in chapter 8, that debate, that controversy and the hostility to Jesus really begin to hot up. This chapter 7 actually looks back a lot to chapter 5. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we saw there, Jesus healed, do you remember this, a paralyzed man in Jerusalem. Um, But he did that on the Sabbath. And so whilst it was a wonderful sign of the new life he's bringing to us, some of the leaders were just not persuaded by him and actually became very hostile. Back in chapter 5, they were plotting to murder Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And this controversy in chapter 7 and chapter 8 continues that debate about who is this that says and does these kind of things. And as we see at the beginning of our chapter 7, if you're back there now, this set of uh, controversial conversations happens on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's this time of year... Uh, an autumn, a harvest festival, is the most popular, it was then at least, of the Jewish festivals. And it involved um, all the Jewish people, or many of them, 
going and camping for seven days around Jerusalem. So it was effectively a kind of week-long Christian camping holiday, a bit like, you know, Keswick Convention or one of those. Because we just love camping, don't we? We just love it, and they did back then. Probably drier, actually, um, in Palestine as well. But the festival looked back to how God had led his people through the desert, living in tents in the desert, and then brought them into the promised land. And also looked ahead to the day when Jews believe that God would bring his people into their rest, into the real promised land, when the Messiah came. So it's a really big festival. And in this chapter, Jesus continues to claim, effectively, to be the one that's really come to do that. To bring God's people to freedom and into God's presence with him. Now in this story, you'll have seen as it's read, people react to Jesus in several different ways. They react with impatience, um, with curiosity, who is this man? With amazement, what teaching? And also at the end with anger at some of the things that he is saying and doing. And so the key, I think, in this story is the relationship between Jesus and the people responding to him. Especially in this chapter, those who are not persuaded, despite the evidence, those that don't believe, at least yet, in Jesus. So here's a little kind of light John's shining on what is it that drives us, despite all the evidence, not to believe in Jesus. And what strikes strikes me here is how Throughout this chapter and the next, Jesus, all the way through, is in complete control. Uh, He's completely free of all the negative things being thrown at him. He's not going to be swayed by them. So I've just got really three different angles on that. Three ways Jesus is free here. Uh, Free from human control, from human teaching, from human judgment. So we're going to go quickly through these. Then we're going to come back and look at this and say, what's this mean for us? So... Jesus is free from human control. Beginning of this chapter, he starts in Galilee, up in the north. So he's up in kind of, I don't know, Sheringham or somewhere. Um, And then he comes eventually in this story to Jerusalem, to to Norwich, to the kind of center. Um, And his brothers are saying in verse 3, look, Jesus, you need to get yourself down to Jerusalem too. There's a big camping festival going on, thousands of people. So they say, go to Judea, that's Jerusalem, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these signs, these things, show yourself to the world. So they're saying, aren't they, um, this is the chance, this big um, stadium platform in Jerusalem, this festival, that's the chance to promote yourself properly. It's rather like a bit controversial here, rather like Boris Johnson staying away from the Tory party conference for a few days, isn't it? No doubt his followers are saying, you know, you need to get up there and get yourself on the platform. Get yourself seen. And John says that the brothers of Jesus, this is probably older brothers from a previous marriage of Joseph, people think, the brothers of Jesus are, they're saying to Jesus, um, we want you to fulfill the world's expectation of what a real 
Messiah looks like. John actually says they lack faith in Jesus. Not that they don't believe he can do signs, they've seen that, but they don't really believe who he is yet, do they? And what he's come to do. They are thinking a worldly way, and Jesus says to them, my time is not yet here. It's not my time yet. For you, you worldly thinkers, any time will do for self-promotion. Um, but I, I will go, but in my own time, thank you. And here is Jesus, free completely, isn't he, from human control, from human ways of thinking. He's following instead uh, what you might call his private, but it's actually God's private, the Father's agenda, the Father's timing, the Father's will. It's always Jesus' way. And so he first stays up north, and then, John says, he later goes. He hasn't changed his mind. He's just doing what the Father's telling him. When he gets to Jerusalem, we see the crowds there are curious. In verse 12, they say, some said he's a good man. Others said, oh no, he deceives the people. So there's a debate going on. Curiosity, is this guy good or not? But his management-minded brothers have got it completely wrong. They're saying, get up to that festival. Get up there and do some more signs. You fed 5,000. Well, feed 20,000 next time. They'll all be there. Let's go big on this. Let's get your campaign going. And Jesus, notice, goes up to Jerusalem eventually in his time. And when he gets there, what does he do? Fascinating. He doesn't do a sign, does he? He teaches. He goes first at 14 to the temple and teaches. So there's Jesus free of human control. He's also free of human teachers. Because there he is in the temple. He's teaching. This is the first public teaching in Jerusalem, in John's Gospel. And no doubt many are transfixed. They're certainly amazed by what he's saying. And the Jews, which in John's Gospel is usually shorthand for the leaders that oppose Jesus, not all the Jewish people, the leaders are amazed. But probably not in a good way. They say in verse 15, where did this man get such learning? Where did he get this stuff from, having never been taught? You see, there was, in those days, no um, online Bible school you could enroll in. If you wanted to be taught the Bible, truth about God, you had to go and, and sit at the feet of a rabbi. And we know, they knew that Jesus had not sat at the feet of a rabbi for a year or two years or three years. Um, he is, in that sense, untaught. And they're saying, well, he's a carpenter's son. Who's been quietly slipping him um, crib notes on theology? And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Um, my teaching's not my own, but it comes from the Father who sent me. Not from a human teacher at all. I don't need human teachers, because the Father is my rabbi. Not Rabbi Samuel or, you know, Bishop Graham or Archbishop Justin. The Father. I mean, that trumps everything. That's, that's it. That's the rabbi of all, isn't it? The Father is my teacher. So he's saying, isn't he? Others have teaching um, that, that, that they've given you about God, and that can be good, but I have teaching from God, and that's different. So he says, verse 17, if you submit to God, if you choose to do God's will, then you'll find my words to be true. 
you'll discover where they come from. Not human teachers, but the Father. He's not saying, by the way, um, that if you live a good life in that sense of doing God's will, then you'll come to believe more strongly. He's actually saying in John's Gospel, doing the will of God, including here, is believing in Jesus. This is the Father's will that you believe the one he sent. So he's actually saying, if you start to believe in me, then you'll find that my words are true. But if you just keep rejecting me, if you're just uh, bloody-minded and difficult and refuse to be persuaded, then you'll never find out. Augustine later said it this way. Uh, He said, believe so that you may understand. That's a key truth in in the Christian faith, that faith is the key to really understanding. If you do the Father's will, if you believe in me, then you will find that my words come from him. Believe that you may understand. So here is Jesus, free from human control, free from human teaching, and also free from human judgment. The last bit of the the story, Jesus and his opponents are both there. They, They both want the Jewish leaders, Jesus, they both want to keep Moses' law, the the first books of the Old Testament, Exodus and so on. And that law, they would both agree, includes not working on the Sabbath, keeping the fourth commandment. But in verse 19, Jesus then accuses his opponents as they're getting increasingly hostile to him that they are breaking the law by trying to kill him. See that verse 19? And he explains that they are doing this because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. So they were back in chapter 5. There it is. He healed a man on the Sabbath, and he says, it's when I did that that you decided that you wanted me dead. You plotted my murder because I healed on the Sabbath. Just think how tragic... Jesus is saying their thinking's become. Almost like the Jewish leaders are saying in their minds. They would not have put it this clearly, no doubt, but they're kind of saying, aren't they? Look, you know, uh, this is the way that the week works. On, on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, uh, Fridays, we do, we teach and we love each other and we do healings. But on Saturdays, we don't do healings. In fact, on Saturdays, we just plot the murder of people who do healings on Saturdays. That's the logic here, isn't it? Healing on the Friday would have been fine, but healing on the Sabbath, no. That's a capital offence. He needs to die. And so Jesus says, look how inconsistent you are. Don't accuse me of being demon-possessed. Look how crazy you are. You have a law that says a male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And he says, that was, actually, it wasn't Moses, it was the patriarchs. It was Abraham and Isaac before Moses. You keep that law, he says. And even if a child, a boy is born, and the eighth day happens to be the Sabbath, you say, no, circumcise him, um, we'll put aside the Sabbath law at that point so as to keep the circumcision law. You keep one law in order that you don't break another. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. He's showing them their logic. And so Jesus says, circumcision in the Bible, it's a sign 
of the, the putting away of all in us that's wrong, our sin, but also our sickness. It's a sign of God's intention to make us one day whole. That's what circumcision points to. So he says, why are you angry with me if I heal a whole man on the Sabbath, which is simply the thing that circumcision points to? If you break one law to keep another, why are you criticizing me if I keep the whole law by healing on the Sabbath? So who's breaking the law now, he's saying, isn't he? Is it me or actually is it you? Because of the way that your traditions have led your thinking. Stop judging falsely, he says at the end, verse 24. Stop judging falsely. Stop refusing to see, he really means, the evidence that I'm giving you of who I am. You can't control me by your judging. But you need to learn to judge rightly by having faith. So that's the story, and that's the way Jesus, in this controversy, this battle with the opposition, and the different responses to him, is showing his freedom all the way through. He won't be constrained by those that want to control his actions. He won't be constrained by those that want to control his teaching, or those that want to control what he does on the Sabbath. He's absolutely free to do the Father's will. And that'll take him in the end, as you might know if you know the story, to the cross where he dies, which we remember in our communion. I've got two things I think that this, is, this teaches us today. The first one is this. Listening, these are both lessons about what it is to be a Christian, what it is to believe in Jesus. Listening is following. Listening is following. It's a kind of following. In fact, it's the heart of following. Because here are Jesus' brothers at the beginning of the story. Remember this, that they're trying to control Jesus, to tell him what to do how to manage his career. And the problem is, is not that they don't believe he can do miracles, is that they want to tell him what to do instead of listening. They want to advise him instead of following. And the Jewish leaders too, we've seen their hostility now, haven't we? They start in a different place from Jesus' brothers perhaps, but their problem's the same. They want to teach Jesus and to judge Jesus, and not to listen to him. Jesus insists all the time on teaching, and they don't like that. They should have been saying to him, shouldn't they? Perhaps we wouldn't have done that either, but they should have been saying, Jesus, you clearly have a hotline to the truth, to God. Please teach us more. We want to learn from you, but they're not. They're saying, how dare you teach? We're the teachers. We want you dead. It's a bit like uh, the Russian KGB uh, creating fake news in denial that their spies have been exposed on global media uh, carrying out attempted murder. They're trying to to discredit Jesus' teaching to put fake news out about him in order that people don't listen to him anymore. They just won't listen themselves. We should be, shouldn't we? All of us today drinking in the words of Jesus, saying, Lord, teach me more. I want to learn more of God from you instead of trying to tell him what to do. Listening is following. If you and I want to follow Jesus, we need to start and, in fact, to continue by listening. I need to stop thinking, I know the truth, 
um, put that pride aside and say, Lord, teach me. Stop judging him by what he calls human measures and make the right judgment of faith. So there's a story about a man in an art gallery once and he was walking around an art gallery and criticizing the pictures and he got to this, this great work of a master and he stood there and, and very loudly and he said, oh, you know, what a load of rubbish, don't like that, wrong color, uh, that's pathetic and so on. And the curator of the art gallery was, was listening to this and, and could stand it no longer and he came up quietly behind the man and as the man was criticizing this great work of art, he just quietly whispered to him, sir, that the quality of the paintings in this gallery is not in doubt. It is the people who look at them that are on trial. That's what John is doing, isn't it, with Jesus here? He's saying, the quality of this man is not in doubt. He's God's son. He's shown himself. He's taught God's words. He's brought the Father's will. He's died on the cross for us in love. Jesus is not in doubt. But those who read these words, those who respond to it, we're the ones on trial. What do you make of him? Will you listen? And maybe someone here this morning, you're recognizing yourself in this, aren't you? You're saying, I, I, I need to stop judging Jesus. I need to be more open to him. I need to stop thinking I know the answers to the biggest things in life and ask him to tell me them. It's easy to demand that he gives me more proof of who he is. He makes it absolutely, certifiably sure and certain. And of course, you can't do that with faith. I just need instead to say, Lord, I'm now listening, teach me. So if that's you, and you're in that kind of... Well, come to the Discover course I mentioned earlier this Tuesday, because that's exactly what we do there. We just say, look, none of us have all the answers. Let's listen and see what Jesus says. Or come to Riding Lights tonight and ask that question, as they're very creatively going to be bringing the Jesus story alive for us. Who really is this? Can I listen to him? You see, we talk about God all the time, including us, especially us in the church. And maybe we need to start listening more instead. We know what we want Jesus to do for us, but we don't often ask him what he wants to do. I wonder how good you are, for instance, at listening to sermons, um, asking Jesus to speak to us, to you, through those. This week I read these words from a great 18th century preacher, George Whitfield. Um, really helping us, advising us on how to listen to Jesus through a sermon, even a not brilliant sermon sometimes. And he said this, just six simple points. He said, hear sincerely, come without prejudice, hear diligently, expect the king to speak to you, take this seriously. Hear humbly, accepting that you and I have things we don't know or don't understand yet. Hear him partially. He meant there, don't have favorite preachers you only ever listen to. Expect God to speak through anyone. Hear obediently. So expect him to challenge and ask for life change. Hear prayerfully. I'm asking that the preacher and the listeners may be sensitive to God's speech through Jesus, through the Spirit. But of course it's not just sermons. It's every day, are you and I spending time opening the Scriptures hearing, listening to Jesus speaking. Because as we listen, that we really follow. So that's the first thing. Listening is following. Here's the second, the final one. Following is finding. 
Following his finding, back in verse 17 again, Jesus says, My teaching comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from him, from the Father. Following Jesus is the way to find out how true his words really are. It's that point that we quoted from Augustine earlier. Believe and you will understand. It's not that faith is detached from evidence. The evidence is very strong and compelling for Jesus. But faith doesn't stop there. Following is finding. If you start to follow, if you put your faith in Jesus, you'll begin to find he's true. Or as the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and then you'll see. Follow and you'll find. If I'm waiting for watertight proof that Jesus is God's son, if I wait and wait and wait, I may miss the opportunity in this life to start following and then to actually find that his words are true. If I follow him, I'll find the proofs in the pudding. His words become a joy and a great direction to me every day of my life. So as we come around the Lord's table in a few minutes and share the bread and wine of communion, those are for us a sign of what Jesus has done for us. A sign that it's through his death, giving his life freely, that I find life. Because he allowed himself, in his freedom, to be murdered by those that hated him. He took their my guilt for wanting him effectively dead myself, for not wanting him to come and take control of my life. He did that so I can be free. I can be forgiven, though I'm a lawbreaker. So if you're here and you're full of doubts about Jesus, please, perhaps this morning, don't take the bread and wine if if that's not you yet. Because these things are a sign of saying, thank you for the freedom you've given me. Thank you for the life you gave in freedom, that I might live. But for someone here this morning, perhaps you are right on that line of faith, and you've been teetering, hovering, searching, maybe even thinking you were there, and you've realized recently that actually you're not yet following. Well, perhaps this morning, taking the bread and wine for the first time as a Christian might be your opportunity today to cross that line of faith and say, Lord, I'm going to follow because I believe that following you, I will find you. I'm going to start listening so that I can follow you. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a second, which will be a way, if that's you this morning, to respond perhaps for the very first time to the Lord Jesus and his invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. But as we all go to our families, our workplaces, our communities this week. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all go from here saying, Lord, wherever I am in terms of faith in you, I want to listen. Please speak to me. Teach me. And as we listen to him, may we better follow him. And as we follow him, may we truly find every day with deeper conviction that his words are truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for coming to show the way to the Father. We thank you for new life. We thank you that despite all of our human 
resistance to who you are, that in freedom you lived a perfect life and died a death on the cross and rose again for us. We come to you this morning asking you to speak and be our teacher every day and asking that as we follow you, we may indeed find your words to be eternal life itself. In Jesus' name, amen.